This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. One of the pleasures of directing Asian American studies or any program, I think, is that you have the, the right and privilege of inviting really cool people out. And we started this year off with Gary Pak, who's an amazing Hawaiian short story writer. We had a one-woman performance by Mickey Yamashita. And we have the pleasure of having a writer in residence for a month, uh, Ruth Ozeki, who will be screening a film tomorrow and sharing the, her comments with us. Um, and so this conference really was formed around the people that I invited. In other words, I just chose some people that I thought would have very interesting things to say about Asian American film and media. And the conference really took shape around their interests and their talents and their their, um, their current research. So sexuality, race, and nation all bind these talks together in one way or the other, and they cross-reference the discourses that are each in different ways staged in the visual, imaginary, and circulate in specific chronotopes. Uh, the papers will approach the idea of the visual as a particular medium, both material in substance and technique, and ideological in composition and reception. How has this particular medium been precisely the form in which and through which desire, fear, need, gratification, solidarity, multiplicity have been staged in the imaginary, and imaginary nonetheless tethered ex extenuatingly times by material history? Um, I'm a literary scholar, so I choose my words very carefully. And I decided to call this a symposium rather than a conference for a very good reason. I really want to accentuate the intimacy of a conversation, a debate, a dialogue. Um, and I'll say something now that I, I always discourage my undergraduates from starting off a paper this way, and I'm sure you've received them, where they begin with a dictionary definition. You know, consulting Webster's dictionary, we find, okay. But um, the OED <laughs> defines symposium thus, and if you don't believe me, you can actually go online and, and look at it. What is a symposium? Definition number one, a drinking party. A convivial meeting for drinking, conversation, and intellectual entertainment. I like the, the sequence of that, right? First you drink, then you talk, and then you might think, uh, but in an entertaining fashion. And then colon, properly among the ancient Greeks, hence generally. So, you know, depending on how we all get in touch with our Greek sides, we'll, we'll have a very good symposium. Um, well, the drinking will, and such will take place after we do our work, um, but I want it to inform our spirit in a kind of subtextual way. So I, I, I want to thank you all for coming. I'll introduce our panelists and respondents now briefly, but I really want to underscore the fact that I want this to be fun, informative, relaxed, conversational, and not a stuffy conference. So um, hopefully there will be other symposia after this. Our first speaker is, is Daryl Y. Hamamoto, who's professor of Asian American Studies at UC Davis. He's an editor of a monograph series with Temporal University Press called Mapping Racisms, and co-edited its, its, co its inaugural volume, New American Destinies, Contemporary Asian and Latino Immigration. His research, con his research contributions have earned him a position on the editorial board of the journal New Political Science. Hamamoto has offered several seminal texts in media studies, including Nervous Laughter, Television Situation Comedy, and Liberal Democratic Ideology, and mon Monitored Peril, Asian Americans, and the Politics of Television Representation. He's also co-edited a widely used anthology on Asian American independent media, 
entitled Counter Visions. He is an internationally recognized authority on Asian American media studies and contributed to standard reference works such as the Encyclopedia of Social Theory and the Encyclopedia of Race and Racism. During the year 2004 to 2005, Hamamoto was scholar in residence at the American Studies Center at the University of Ryukyus in Japan, examining the conflicted U.S.-Japan-Okinawan relationship. His observations found their way into an essay entitled Soft Colonialism, which recently was published in the Okinawa Literary Annual 2005. In addition to his scholarship, Hamamoto produces independent Asian-American media, including Skin on Skin and the experimental video Yellow Cost, which will be screened tomorrow, and I hope you can all come in and view that, along with works of music. Our second speaker is Celine Perenius Shimizu, who recently received tenure, applause, at the University of California at Santa Barbara, where she works as a filmmaker and film scholar in the Asian American Film and Women's Studies departments. Her areas of research and teaching are in film and performance theory and production, social theories of power and inequality, race and sexuality studies, feminist post-colonial theory, and Asian American cultural studies. Her first book, The Hypersexuality of Race, which is forthcoming from Duke University Press, focuses on the hypersexual representations of Asian American women in various media, including industry and independent film, pornography, and feminist video. Recent essays are forthcoming in the Yale Journal of Law and Feminism, Theater Journal, and Signs. Her latest film, The Fact of Asian Women, won four festival awards. She is currently making Birthright, her fourth experimental ethnographic film, and conducting archival research on her next book project, Race and the Hollywood Sex Act, a comparative study of the production of racial identities through sexual acts in U.S. popular cinema. She received her B.A. in Ethnic Studies from UC Berkeley, her M.F.A. in Film Directing and Production at the UCLA School of Theater, Film, and Television, and most importantly for me, her Ph.D. in Modern Thought and Literature at Stanford University. Her awards include the UC Institute for Research in the Arts Award, Social Science Research Council Sexuality Research Fellowship, the Edie and Lou Wasserman Directing Fellowship, and the Eisner Prize, UC Berkeley's highest award in the creative arts. Our respondent, we are very fortunate to have recruited and twisted her arm, even though she is on leave. So extra, extra kudos to her and gratitude. Pranima Mankekar, uh, who joined the Department of Social and Cultural Anthropology uh, in the spring of 1994. Uh, her dissertation entitled Reconstitu Reconstituting Indian Womanhood, an Ethnography of Television Viewers in a North Indian City, explored the effective basis of nationalism and the ways in which the politics of gender, sexuality, family, and ethnicity shaped people's ideas about the nation and themselves as citizens. Based on research among viewers whose interpretation of television serials is contextually analyzed, Professor Mankekar's work has stimulated some of the most exciting new questions about popular culture and nationalism emerging out of British cultural studies. Her next project focuses on transnational flows within the third world. Articles include National Texts and Gendered Lives and Ethnography of Television Viewers in a North Indian City in American Ethnologist, and Television Tales and a Woman's Rage, a nationalist recasting of Drapadi's disrobing in public, public culture, in the journal Public Culture. She is the author of Screening Culture, Viewing Politics, and Ethnography of Television and Womanhood and Nation in Postcolonial India, which came out uh, from Duke University Press. She now examines the production of South Asian American public cultures. Um, 
I will let the panelists speak, but please help me in welcoming them all. Thank you for your kind introduction, Professor. Now, David, um, I was going to start out with a dictionary definition, but I guess I'm going to change my plans on the basis of your, your comments. Anyway, um, the title of my talk alludes to uh, the documentary Hearts and Minds. So this talk is on the basis of a very bad pun, I suppose, Hearts and Groins. Uh, it was, uh, this film was released in 1974. It was directed by Peter Davis. Uh, Peter Fang is probably quite familiar with it. It's quite old, so maybe most of you haven't seen it. But anyway, uh, Davis is a Peabody Award winner. He worked for CBS News when it was actually a news organization way back in 1970s. Today, of course, it's an adjunct of corporate military America. And uh, this is a period of time when the Vietnam War was raging. It was still going on. And prior to Hearts and Minds, Davis uh, achieved notoriety for uh, producing a CBS, a very hard-hitting CBS documentary when they were doing such work, today they don't, right? Uh, he produced a, uh, a noteworthy, award-winning documentary called The Selling of the Pentagon. And of course, today we know that corporate America, the Pentagon, uh, effective corporation, all these kind of work in cahoots today in uh, this current regime that we're uh, enduring. Uh, nonetheless, The Selling of the Pentagon, it drew a lot of political heat back then. I think it wound uh, uh, Peter Davis on some sort of uh, informal blacklist. Um, it drew a lot of political heat, and so did the network that produced it, CBS. But CBS went to bat for, for uh, Peter Davis and stood by its integrity as a indep well, fairly independent news uh, organization, even though it's linked itself with the larger uh, corporate apparatus. Uh, such a documentary today, almost needless to say, would not be aired on the network uh, oligopoly that we see today, which includes not just the big three, but Fox Television and uh, the other uh, networks that have, that have uh, come about. Uh, we have, in other words, a really highly ideologically constricted uh, media oligopoly. And the reason I, I preface my talk with this is because uh, I believe it makes it all the more important that we support, produce, and uh, play advocate for uh, media, independent media, in such an environment works that just Celine's here. I think it's very, very important in this larger struggle against this this, uh, this leviathan, I guess if you want to call it, this media oligopoly. Uh, younger people here in this audience might not have a frame of reference because you grew up in this environment. You don't have any sort of context that you can draw from, but I guarantee you, even as recently as 10 or 15 years ago, the media environment was quite different. It's become very, very conservative, hyper-conservative, hard right, theocratic in nature, according to uh, Kevin Phillips, and on and on. Uh, Hearts and Minds, uh, more specifically, is a documentary on the Vietnam War. For those of you who are unfamiliar with it, I would say that uh, Hearts and Minds was one of the uh, defining films of uh, the Vietnam War era, and I recommend that uh, you rent it from Netflix. I doubt if you're going to find it on Blockbuster, but I got it on Netflix. I'm not a shareholder, but uh, you might want to rent it from them. Um, Certainly, this documentary film, Hearts and Mind, really played a crucial, a formative uh, part, a formative role in my personal uh, political development. I was still in college way back then uh, in 1974, and uh, the war was winding down. Uh, Nixon had put us, Nixon slash Kissinger had put us on this sort of Vietnamization track, and by 75, of the spring of 1975, the war was ending. 
Um, so this film came out towards the end of the war, but it, there still was a great deal of political uh, ferment, to put it lightly, on campuses across the country. Uh, and anti-Vietnam War resistance was the focal point of this political ferment going on. Uh, not coincidentally, this period of time saw the rise of Asian American studies on university campuses, mostly on the West Coast at the time, because this is, this is the nature of the demographics in 1974. Today, it's much more spread. It's, it's coast to coast, north to south, all over the place. We were talking over lunch about different programs that are uh, just beginning at uh, different institutions across the country. So it's no coincidence that uh, Asian American studies, the Asian American movement arose at the same time as the uh, Vietnam War. Because many Asian Americans who came to consciousness at this time understood the Vietnam War as a race war. That's not my phrase. This is what I read from uh, legitimate historians, race war. Uh, it was also a racist war. It was a racist war in that non-white peoples, especially blacks and Chicanos, as they were called back then, today it's more Latino, Latina, and uh, Hispanic, I guess they're called, but back then it was Chicano. Uh, non-white peoples, blacks and Chicanos, were overrepresented in the military. Um, or as the comedian, social activist, Dick Gregory, do you know who Dick Gregory is? He, he's now sort of a diet guru as well, because I think he weighed 300 pounds at one time, and now he's a trim 130 pounds. And anyway, he started out as a comedian, but he's a social activist as well, civil rights advocate. This is how he characterized the Vietnam War. According to Gregory, I'm paraphrasing, says that it's a war fought by the black man to kill the yellow man on behalf of the white man who stole the land from the red man. I think that's a... <laughs> A very nice formulation. So the central argument of this paper is that the legacy of uh, U.S. militarism, beginning with the Philippine-American War, 1899 to 1902, in which anywhere from 250,000 to 1 million civilians, non-combatants, I'm talking about civilians, were killed as a result of the extermination war prosecuted by the U.S. And I argue that this history beginning with this overseas war has had a determinative effect in distorting Asian American sexuality, Asian actually, and Asian American sexuality. The legacy that begins with the military subjugation of the Philippines and then colonization continued through the, the Korean War in the 1950s, and South Korea is still an occupied country, occupied by the U.S. military and then through the Vietnam War, which includes not just Vietnam proper, but also Laos, Cambodia, and by extension, Thailand, and other uh, Southeast Asian uh, nations. Uh, in addition, during the Cold War, the United States military maintained bases throughout much of Asia, and it still does to this very day. Uh, this includes our chief post-war ally in East Asia, Japan, still, it's losing its grip, but it's still the second largest uh, economy in the world. It's a sovereign nation, but Japan is an occupied country. It's occupied by the U.S. military. It's kind of, they rent, they're renting it. They're paying for it. But uh, nonetheless, uh, the U.S. military presence in Japan is uh, omnipresent. Uh, it also includes South Korea, as I alluded to earlier, uh, and Taiwan until long, uh, not long ago, uh, there were military installations. There are still spy stations in uh, Taiwan and nearby Hainan Island, places like that and uh, the Pacific Islands as well, heavy, heavily militarized uh, places such as Guam, 
they're also part of this military base complex, this global military. I'm just talking about e uh, Asia now. We're talk this is true for uh, much of Western Europe, places like Turkey, and of course the Near East, the Middle East. Last year I spent uh, my sabbatical in Okinawa, Japan, which is the southernmost prefecture uh, in Japan and the Japanese archipelago. It's a prefecture which is analogous to uh, what we would call a state. It's actually closer to China than anywhere else. It's more culturally related to China. It's very close to Taiwan. And they have a, Okinawans have a, I'm half Okinawan, by the way, so I have a, an affinity to it. Um, but uh, there's a distinctive culture that evolved separately from the centralized Meiji state as it was, um, as it was uh, uh, constructed during the, the early stages of Japanese modernity. Anyway, I spent my, uh, last, uh, my last year, the sabbatical year, in Okinawa. Uh, and Okinawa shoulders the largest burden of the U U.S. military base uh, presence in that particular nation. It's a very, very high concentration. The main island, called uh, Okinawa Honto, is uh, literally bisected by these Air Force bases and marine installations. Uh, there's a whole mosaic of uh, Air Force bases and spy stations. Uh, the latest in spy uh, satellite technologies are housed in Okinawa. I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago, uh, a couple of years ago, I think it is by now, uh, there was a, uh, a purposive accident that took place close to Hainan Island with one of these uh, surveillance planes. Well, those planes fly, fly regularly out of Okinawa and they surveil the eastern part of mainland China. There's a lot of tension going on. And of course, North Korea. That's where a lot of this activity is taking place. Since the end of World War II, um, there's been nothing but a long string of this history of U.S. servicemen abusing, sexually assaulting, and even murdering Okinawan women, and sometimes even girls, girls as young as 12 years old. Similar stories abound in other sovereign nations that are held hostage to U.S. geopolitics. There was a rape case that occurred just last November in the Philippines where a, well, actually it was four U.S. Marines uh, attacked, molested, uh, raped a woman outside the uh, uh, Subic Bay. It used to be a U.S. naval, I think it was the, the chief naval base in, uh, in the Philippines. But as you know, after Mount Pinatubo blew, uh, the United States Navy took off, but they're still there and they're coming back uh, under the pretext of the fighting the war on terror, especially in the southern Philippines against the, the, the Bangsamoro, the, uh, the Abu Sayyaf and Jamaa Islamiyah people. That's how they're remilitarizing that part of the world. Anyway, um, the population, local population, um, the larger communities uh, who watch and observe these types of outrages, they were very upset and they were uh, on the verge of attacking uh, you know, American civilians, anybody in, in, within striking range. Um, few Americans are probably aware of this one incident, but this is just one incident of hundreds that have taken place since the end of World War II when U.S. empire began its uh, global reach. Hundreds. I don't, we, I don't know the exact numbers. It's, it might be even in the thousands. And if you want more details on this, uh, two influential books that I have referred to that talk about, they'll give you the, he'll give you the, the nuts and bolts, the facts, information. The two books that really informed my thought uh, on this was a an earlier book by Chalmers Johnson, uh, who runs the uh, Japan uh, Policy Research Institute. It's called Blowback, and this is a quite prophetic book. This was actually published right before 9-11, where we did experience blowback from our imperial ambitions, and this time in the Middle East. And then more recently, he came out with Empire uh, of Sorrow, which extends his analysis of American imperium. 
Because the U.S. military has played such a dominant, even controlling role in the life of nations such as the Philippines, South Korea, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, Taiwan, Japan, generations of young men, young American men, have had their sexuality formed in this crucible of imperial occupation. Most of them, in other words, were barely out of high school, their sexuality still in the process of being formed. And thrust into these wartime conditions, these young men had available to them almost an almost limitless supply of cheap beer, San Miguel, in Okinawa, it's Orion beer, Orion beer, cheap beer, uh, a practically unregulated uh, un availability of the local women, you name it. And therein, I think, lies the roots of the contemporary sexual fetishism of not just Asian women, but Asian American women. Other factors, I think, also contribute to this form of uh, sexual desire, uh, including the global reach today of, um, of Asian popular culture. Pornima, you do, you're probably doing some work on the exportation of you know, Indian cinema and how it's become sort of part of the US popular culture. Um, so we see that globalized reach of uh, Asian popular culture, including anime, right? And you see the Sailor Moon pictures, the girls in the short the sailor suits with their panties showing and all that. I'm sure it has a, a huge impact on the, you know, the seven, eight, nine-year-old kids that are growing up these days. Hong Kong movies, uh, and of course, uh, Asian online erotica. We were talking a little bit about that over lunch today. It was a very pleasant lunch, by the way. Um, anyway, what I'd like to argue is that um, the American militarist culture uh, that stands above all the other causal factors uh, is really responsible for this form of sexual fetishism. All this is to say is that uh, the heart and the groin, our sexuality in other words, are uh, conditioned by material forces. They're conditioned by historical forces. They're not innate. They don't just manifest themselves magically as a lot of my students would like to say, oh, it's love. It's just attraction, it's fate. More specifically, sexual desire arises from the history of US colonialism, US occupation, US military supremacy over the past 100 years, especially after World War II. And I imagine that uh, were the United States successful in maintaining its presence in the Middle East, that a similar fetishization of Arab and Muslim women will result. Uh, in seeing, instead of seeing these uh, so-called massage parlors with uh, East Asian inflected themes, such as House of Bamboo or Silk Palace, something like that, and they're in every city, they're in every town uh, across the country, um, I think that we might be begin to see establishments that cater to the needs of former American servicemen who've had their sexuality shaped in Congress with Arab and Muslim women during their tour of duty in Afghanistan or Iraq. So we'll look in the yellow pages and find places called Magic Carpet Ride or you know Alibaba, something of, of that nature. I'm predicting this. Uh, and again, the reason I say this is the point is, is that human sexuality, our sexuality, Asian American sexuality in specific, is not simply some free-floating signifier that has only arbitrary meaning. It is rooted in the material history, the history of, of colonialism. 
It's the outcome of the material forces of imperial occupation. Now, I want to shift these, uh, this discussion um, uh, to the ways in which Asian Americans themselves fit into this regime of militarism. Uh, going back to the observations of thinkers like uh, Fritz Fanon, uh, he was well acquainted with the psychology of racially subordinated people. Uh, he's made the observation that racially subordinate people, and by the way, I include Asian Americans in that category. He may be a uh, professor, but um, within the larger context of American society, you still are an Asian American person and all the baggage that comes with that. Um, but Fanon, Fanon and others uh, have observed that there's this process among such people of, of identifying, perhaps even over-identifying with the racial elite in any given society. Uh, and I think this is somewhat similar or akin to the so-called Stockholm Syndrome, uh, where those who've been held helpless or near helpless or in semi-captivity or powerless in, uh, in captivity come to identify with the captors. This happens in concentration camp experiences. I work with uh, older Nisei who have been in an interned and I see a very similar process. They, they came to identify with the, with the administration, uh, their teachers who happened to be you know, Euro-American people rather than their fellow Nisei internees. They had far less respect because they were also prisoners and they were also um, a subject group of people. Um, in the case of the actual, the term Stockholm uh, Syndrome came from an actual uh, bank robbery that took place in the 70s in Stockholm, Sweden. And uh, they were held for a number of days, these hostages in the bank. And what happened after these uh, uh, hostage takers were convic convicted, some of the former hostages begged for leniency on the part of the judge in their sentencing because they identified with them so strongly. And in fact, three or four of, of the former captives, women, all, uh, three or four of the women who were held against their will, went on to marry the convicted captors. After they, got, they served their prison spell, they got married, or maybe they married them in prison. That's how strong this syndrome operates. And I don't want to take the analogy too far, but uh, in my observations, whether in the larger Japan, Okinawa, South Korea, even in my own classroom, I see a similar psychology taking place to varying degrees. Um, in the interest of time, um, uh, let me give you an example of this. Um, I received an email message just last week um, I, concerning my Asian American erotica series that I uh, started about uh, three, three years ago, two or three years ago. I've received a number of tons of messages most of them positive. I haven't really received any hate mail, nothing like that. Uh, I've, I've gotten messages from um, Christian fundamentalists to uh, entertainment attorneys who want to represent me because they smell some money there, perhaps. I don't know. But most of the letters, most of these messages are from young people who are uh, living these dilemmas of Asian American sexuality as I've outlined them in various projects. So I think a raw nerve has really been touched. And, this, this is the recent letter I received just last week. It's, it says, Dear uh, Daryl Hamamoto, I've come across a few articles about you which show that I am particularly interested in the subject. Uh, I am honestly delighted in your idea about changing the Asian male stereotype. I've spent my teen years in the Philippines and have not been aware of this stereotype till coming back last year, though I have noticed a bit of it within my own country. Females always looking for someone whiter 
with a more Caucasian complexion. See, this is part of the internal colonization process. Um, as, uh, well, as for the subject of my email, a pornographic film depicting two American Asians is a step, but really, if you want a film about Asian men and women, there are already a huge amount of films like that in Asia itself. Yeah, I know that, but I want to hear Asian American men and women groan and moan in English as opposed to Japanese or Cantonese or whatever. So uh, he's claiming that it's not as uh, uh, dynamic as he puts it uh, effect uh, as I may think. So he says, instead of uh, a film just between American Asians, why not Asian men in interracial pornography? I have always looked for such a film and have concluded it does not really exist up to the point that if I had the means to do so, I would create my own production. I've entitled my idea in pornographic fashion, this is his title, East Meets West. Sorry, I think it's been done. <laughs> but you know, we, we all come into this at various stages, right? While I strongly believe that a film showing Asian men in interracial, by, by that he means he wants Asian men to be with white women, right? Interracial pornography might actually give the desired push we would need and also the chance of opening up a new market altogether. Um, his name is, uh, well, I'll leave you. This must be a, a fake name. It's, this would be like a name of a porn star. But, but his last name is uh, Prodigalidad, I guess is how you pronounce it, which is a great name for that. Anyway, he writes this letter. And I think this is represented, this letter, this most recent letter is representative of the number one question that I've gotten, uh, been asked in, um, at different venues where I've screened Yellow Cost. And also in my Asian American and media class, this is the, 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 the question that always crops up, almost first or second. Uh, this past quarter, um, I was talking about my whole Asian American erotica program. And the question is, why don't you make a movie with an Asian American man getting with an Asian American or a white American woman. And my answer to this is that uh, beginning with the early, the very earliest Chinese immigration to the United States, strategies of separation, strategies of containment have been imposed by the white racial state to prevent the coming together of Asian American men and Asian American women from the beginning for almost 150 years. And as you know from your study of Asian American history, there has been a battery, a whole slew of race-based discriminatory laws, legislation, and even social customs in the US that have prevented women from getting together with Asian American men. For example, the restrictive laws of, uh, applied against the early Chinese immigrants to the United States. Uh, in the case of mainland uh, Japanese Americans, the people in the US mainland, the case in Hawaii is a little bit different. In the case of mainland Japanese Americans, the internment experience shattered the relationship between husbands and wives, between men and women, and it shattered the relations within the family as well. And it should be no surprise, and this is what sociologists have come up with the hard information on this, it should come as no surprise that in following World War II, Upwards of 70% of Japanese American women married non-Asians, primarily white males. And these are just two examples, but I think this argument applies to any Asian American ethnic group that you want to look at. That's how total this regime uh, is, so far as I can see. So my answer to this question commonly posed is this. Given this history of Asian American sexuality distorted by the laws, by the customs, of the white racial republic, I believe it's a revelation in itself to depict a simple act of sexual expression between two Asian Americans. That in itself is 
uh, a revelation. This is why I wrote the theoretical essay, The Joy Fuck Club. This is why I followed up with a feature-length all-American erotic video. Obviously, this is you know, just the part, the beginning of uh, what I think is a collective, long-term, intellectual, aesthetic, and a political project. And I'm glad to see that, um, that the message is getting out here. And uh, in closing, um, I'd just like to state I look forward to working with all of you in uh, advancing this agenda uh, involving Asian American community. And it's not just something for people who are coming up, right? Uh, it also applies to older Asian Americans, such as the Nisei group I work with. They also have a sexuality that's been shaped like this. And that's something that, that, um, that I want to explore. I'm not saying I want to make a geriatric erotic film, but I certainly want to get their life history and find out more as, as, about their own sexuality and how it was formed in places like the camps, the internment camps. So that concludes this talk. I hope you'll be around tomorrow to see Yellow Cost and the other excellent films that we'll be screening uh, in tomorrow's session. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak today, and I especially look forward to the conversation afterwards because I think this, it's so wonderful to begin with a panel on sexuality because it's so much about the complexity of sexuality and the complexity of representation in, in terms of challenging um, our many foundational understandings of Asian American studies today. So the new title of my talk is The Political Power of Bending Over, Strapping On and Other Explicit Sex Acts hypersexuality in Asian American feminist films. Wearing blue lipstick and looking like an astronaut with big, long black hair, Machiko Saito is winking at the camera and strutting around San Francisco. Next, she's making love with a gorgeous man in Berlin in what looks like a squat or a tenement. Perennially focused on lives in the margins, her film Heart, Shell, Unshan celebrates a nomadic, urban, and cosmopolitan racial and sexual being. In another film, Pink Eye, she's at home in hot pink sparkly eyeshadow and tight silver leather, negotiating a camera, tripod, lights, and a ladder. She peers through a fish eye lens with her face on the floor. She's framing the scene for us. The movie documents and narrates Machiko Saito's process of filmmaking itself. She shoots herself in a pink wig and fetish gear, breaking a camera in the middle of shooting. By shooting herself in the process of making film and negotiating her ability to use technology, Saito attempts to illustrate and articulate a celebration of sexuality and desire, at the same time problematizing technology, especially in terms of visualizing race and desire. In premenstrual spotting, she's naked, drunk, singing from the musical Chicago in her apartment. Then she's masturbating, bleeding on the bathroom floor. In another film, Femme TV, she's at the Folsom Street Fair here in San Francisco, where assless chaps and duct tape on nipples suffice as adequate clothing for different types of bodies. Before she takes us to a scene of sex where women strap on dildos and punish each other lovingly. Machiko Saito's films challenge approaches to racialized sexuality in Asian American film and feminist studies that render sexual representations of the racial experience as damaging and dangerous. 
How do discourses of panic and fear regarding Asian American female hypersexuality marginalize women like Machiko Saito, who wrestle with the contradictions, traumas, and joys of the racial experience of which sexuality is intrinsically a part, and vice versa, the sexual experience of which race is intrinsically a part? How do these films authored by Asian American women like Machiko Saito and other filmmakers like Grace Lee, Helen Lee, present enabling new freedoms and new subjectivities, especially in redefining the tradition of hypersexuality for Asian American women. What I'm going to do today are close readings of um, the racialized sexuality in Machiko Saito's films um, to show how they rewrite norms for proper racial, gendered, and sexual women. And she does this through disconnecting the ascription of racialized sexuality from their ontology, from their very being. That is, the hypersexual attribution is no longer natural to their race and gender because it does not capture, capture this process of subjection that they undergo in various scenarios. So each of her films is committed to kind of um, showing these very specific scenarios in order to deconstruct this racialization through sex. So while the Asian female characters in her films may be sexually available and very sexy, their subjectivities are forged within and beyond their racial bonds. So in her film works, as well as within my interviews with Saito, I focus on the ways in which she asserts a new epistemology, meaning like a new, new ways of knowing Asian American women in terms of moving images as well as living images through their representational practices, methods, and even ways of life. Um, that I tried to capture through these interviews. I think it's not enough to just look at the films, but it's important to talk to them and see and and figure out why they chose these particular methods. So um, what she's doing is she's using sexually explicit moving images to create new morphologies or new forms and structures of legibility for Asian American women in the popular imagination through her representations. Her reclamations of hypersexuality. I believe, describe struggles for recognition. She's trying to index sexual subjugation through race and at the same time making a demand for rich, nuanced, and complex representations that can do justice to the complexity of her experiences in terms of race and sex. Finally, what I'm going to do, which is why I'm entitling the, this paper, The Political Power of Bending Over, Strapping On, and Other Explicit Sex Acts, is to redefine aberrant and perverse sexuality as offering anti-racist political critique, especially in terms of redefining everyday, ordinary sexuality for Asian American women. So let's see if I do that. Um, I'm going to now do a close reading of um, Premenstrual Spotting, which is her most well-known film. So the opening of Premenstrual Spotting 1998, suggests a traditional Asian-American autobiographical nonfiction film. The camera zooms into the still image of family life. It's a portrait of her father and her childhood self. Soon, this traditional revelation of the documentary subject is interrupted by a tall, angular female figure in leather fetish wear, whipping her long body taut in a kind of window frame in a very constrained space. She's ambiguous. You don't know if she's a drag queen or she's a woman playing at a man in female drag. And the editing is cut fast, like to the beat of a strobe light, and set to really jarring music, truly announcing that this is not your typical confessional piece. It provides, I think, a counterpoint to what Lisa Lowe calls the generational framework of history telling in Asian American narratives. We seem to see familiar images of family in home movie footage, but they're intercut with these the same kind of disturbing, monstrous figure posing in shocking white light. 
The father is smoking at the dinner table in one photograph. The mom's represented in a 60s haircut juxtaposed against the images of this daughter in drag, ultimately, you know, just getting kind of worse, just more drunk, more naked, and flaunting a kind of confrontational attitude with the camera. Enacting show tunes in full performance mode of arms flinging and her hair long, teased, and displayed, very big. The woman looks monstrous and at the same time gorgeous. The narrator in this way is completely unreliable. You don't know what's going on and she's very scary. In voiceover, the narrator eventually talks about getting drunk every night as an adult and elaborates you know, performance of fetish wear as rehearsing a kind of child's play, she calls it, through a superhero sexual persona. So she's trying to, to reenact her childhood and at the same time become a superhero in the very act of doing this. What she's doing is playing with gender instability and ambiguity, so we never can quite pin her down to figure out what's going on. Is this a woman kind of entrenched in pleasure or pain? So it's also um, a performance that makes us question the reliability of representation itself, like what are we supposed to get out of this? What we do see is the collision of her two worlds, an old sexual terror that won't go away in terms of her family history, that continues to haunt her current world as it explodes with expressions of pleasure in her contemporary bodily movements and the performance of these show tunes that she's belting out with all of her might and all of her life. The movie um, is very difficult to watch, for there is a specter of violence throughout the film in terms of her physical performance. So she's gradually getting more drunk and she's falling all over the place and you start worrying about her in terms of hitting her head in the bathtub. She's simulating masturbation and, and there's a description of graphic sex acts and the sexual abuse she experienced with her father. So premenstrual spotting, the title of the film, actually refers to what her mother um, renames the daughter's vaginal and anal bleeding at six years old. She describes the comfort she feels in bathrooms, the daughter does, as spaces that can lock so she can breathe again in a house where she was sexually abused. Show tunes from the musical Chicago featuring the refrain, I'm here, register the coming together of terror and subjugation, at the same time a kind of self-acceptance of survival emerging from those conditions. The ending of the film features um, the reinterpretation of fellatio and sodomy with her father that she performed as a six-year-old girl. So that the final shots we see are a kind of money shot in porn. You know, the, the money shot is you know semen all over the woman's face as proof of pleasure happening in the in the porno, pornographic film. But in this film, instead, what happens is that blood spatters um, all over her face as she lays spread eagled in the very bathroom where she plays and performs earlier in the tape. So it's in the final moments of the tape that we understand the title finally as the misnaming evidence the misnaming of evidence in order to hide the crime of her father. And the mother deliberately classifies the blood in her daughter's genitals, evidence of the sexual abuse as, as nothing but just premenstrual spotting. In this classification, designed to protect the integrity of the family and to disregard the daughter's pain and experience, we see that the daughter is derivative, unimportant, and negated. The film's language of sexual play and visual pleasure emerging from this violence is imbricated with intense trauma regarding, regarding sexual survival. A sexual um, survival of sexuality, sexual violence at home in the hands of a loved one. So there's a coexistence of pain and trauma at the same time that there's a kind of belting out of joy of survival, reminding us of the pleasure in sexuality as well as the pain and suffering that's found therein, coexisting at the same time. So the representation of surviving and acknowledging rape becomes a call for recognition of one's subjection and one's crafting of creative work to try to capture that experience, to pass on knowledge of that experience, at the same time to recast that experience. 
So as you can tell, I really wanted to meet Machiko Saito and talk to her about what she was trying to do because it was in incredibly shocking as well as um, awakening to, to see her work. Um, and although Machiko Saito is local to the Bay Area, it is very hard to find her. Even if you offer her money to buy her films, she will make you work hard to let you buy her films. So uh, just a little bit of kind of professional biography. She's an award-winning experimental filmmaker. Um, she screens and wins prizes in prominent experimental film festivals all over the world while work working as a filmmaker who defies the very classification of independent because she barely distributes her own work. She resists the commercial aspects of marketing oneself. Saito's experimental film, Premenstrual Spotting, features you know, this racialized sexual subject whose history of family sexual trauma registers within a playful, powerful, disturbing, and defiant presence on screen. And I think, and this film, I think, could do really well showing in various kind of educational venues, but even she, she really resists all of this. And what I find so enabling in her films is that she's working within a definition of sexuality that's so much about the simultaneity of pleasure and trauma and about the damaging power of sexual abuse and the pain one must endure from it in order to formulate a kind of transformation or consciousness that is possible from acknowledging that history through film. So she shoots um, films entirely by herself, um, and she's made four films so far, and I asked her to describe this process of filmmaking. She says, I shoot, direct, edit, and create, write, perform, and act, all of it, whatever I feel like. I don't have a specific agenda with any of my four pieces. Premenstrual spotting was a big experiment, a learning of technology. I learned how to shoot and edit, play with myself on camera, with no intent for anything other than what happens in the moment, put a, to put an outfit on, to put on a, a gel, and to see what happens. So for Machiko Saito, making the film is about engaging herself as a visual artist or finding an, simply another venue as an expressive person. She aims to capture what she sees that the camera does not always get. Based on the fact that she lives lives like hers that are not represented very well in the public imagination, in national fantasy, national representation, she enacts what she calls film experiments. So premenstrual spotting did not start out as a film about sexual abuse, but the abuse reared its head in the final moments of the film when she records her voiceover to make sense of what kinds of images she captured when she was playing. So in terms of, and that's so interesting, in terms of you know how sexual secrets can haunt you and define who you are and you think you're just playing around and then it becomes everything and it explains so much about her or about others. <clears throat> so the film, it, the film had a life of its own and needed to be made, I think beyond her person. Um, in terms of distribution, she says she makes um, films 99, alone 99% of the time in what she calls an isolating experience. And what happened with her, she never intended to distribute this film. She was working at Artist Television Access in San Francisco, and she was hiding as she was making this film. But a curator happened to pass by, saw a frame, and insisted that the film debut at the Mix Festival in New York City, which is a highly regarded queer of color festival. And of course, he fought really hard with her to even show this film. And she finally agreed to do it. And she was completely petrified to realize, oh, films are actually seen in public. And she described this process of sitting in the movie theater and just completely afraid and completely, what she says, um, felt vulnerable. Uh, looking at herself, staring back in the front row, it actually, she said, was a really painful experience to watch this film. So she describes a highly bodily response to the corporeality of the film herself. Her viewing in New York is informed by the context of the film's production in San Francisco. Um, so I asked her a great deal about you know, life in San Francisco and what her life is like as a filmmaker. Um, 
And she talked a great deal about you know, what it means to be sexy and what it means to be naked and how naked does not equal sexy. And she's you know, naked for a great deal of this movie. There's a line in premenstrual spotting, she says, where she's learning how to enjoy sex. And she says, in the celebration of sex in popular culture today, she says, I feel I was doing it in a way, but also not. This town, San Francisco, is so sex positive, sex parties. Can we do other things than fuck each other on stage? So she's really coming from this experience where there's just a kind of over exposure of sexuality. So her film makes a critique where pleasure is emphasized. So I think that's an important context uh, of making sense of where she's coming from at the expense of pain and sexual trauma. And I think this is so, um, this so quintessentially captures these debates between what is the place of race and sex positive discourse. And so in describing the film as a kind of process of discovery rather than a piece intended to discuss sexual violence, Saito describes sexual trauma functioning like the return of the repressed. Her first film, for example, addresses sexual violence as something that rears its head in the final post-production process. As a filmmaker, Saito says there's not a lot of stability in terms of negotiating industry and independent work. From this position, as someone who says, I live a simple life that I make complicated, she is one who defies normative race, class, gender, and sex norms, dressed flamboyantly in a tiara, cowboy hat, and black Western-style leather gear. So whenever we you know, go and meet each other in interviews, I always feel incredibly underdressed. And um, the last time I interviewed her in Santa Barbara, she actually made a dress out of a garbage can, a gar garbage bag. And somehow on it, she got to write, I love New York. I, I don't know, you know where she found a garbage bag that says that. But it's, it was an incredibly um, beautiful dress. And I think in her life, as well as in her filmmaking practices, what she's trying to do is redefine sexuality in everyday life. She says, sexuality is an innate quality that should be protected, appreciated, enjoyed, and not exploited. It's really unfortunate. It happens to all women. We feel we have to mask our sexuality to protect ourselves. Instead, she says, sex should be fun, intense, dramatic. Saito's engagement with race, sexuality, and visuality as forces central to life as we currently know it offer new forms of power and pleasure in wrestling with the Asian American woman's sexuality on screen, making and unmaking her in ways that testify to her resilience in the face of her assignation as a derivative subject of race, sex, and gender, not only in terms of her everyday life, but also in terms of industry practices of, you know, even having the authority and permission to make a film about yourself. So in her movies, Machiko Saito prioritizes women's individualized sexual needs and redefines the terms of the, their legibility in a world where Asian American women and specifically sexual minorities are too frequently rendered as derivative subjects. Moreover, the women in her films claim aberrant sexualities in order to reject normative definitions of proper womanhood and proper racial being. Most importantly, she insists on representing sex as central and perhaps even a dominant undergirding thematic in organizing her life and her work. For her, sex is the site where racial subjectivities form and reform, class collides and gender unravels as the self forms and transforms in, in, in sexual encounter as well as the filmic encounter. She offers a redefinition of sexuality as an aesthetic as well as an, as an organizer of race, class, and gender experiences. And what she's doing is beyond aspiring to the normal, you know, or returning to what, you know, Renee Tajima in Asian American feminist film criticism is asking for to demand simply more ordinary representations of Asian women in film, Machiko's work is doing something else. Something much ex extends the questions much further. I believe her work confirms what I long for myself in Asian American women's representations in film, which is to redefine the ordinary, not to mean fear of sexual politics, or even a recommendation for asexuality.
or a flight from the damaging power of the intersection of race and sex. So what she's doing is a redefinition of sexuality that must transpire to include what has been typically classified as perverse, whether it's sexual acts or particular sexual identities. So queer acts, lesbianism, sadomasochism, prostitution, asexuality, masturbation, and other non-normative identities, acts, and practices that um, are trying to defy the continuing demand for women to be moral, chaste, and demure. So it's an argument for women's sexual power in the context of um, racial subjugation. So I'm trying to pose good questions in the making of bad objects. The work of Asian American filmmakers like Saito express experiences of sexuality, sexual desire, and sexual identities in representation that requires for you know, more theoretical acumen about fantasy, representation, sexuality, and race, that all of these are complex formations. Um, Asian American feminist filmmakers who produce bad objects or what I consider improper, you know, representations of improper sexual acts, things that you're not supposed to be doing, or um, embodying inappropriate identities as are social critiques of gender, race, and sexual bourgeois hetero heteronormative sexual norms. So through bad object production, Asian women feminist filmmakers like Machiko Saito assert struggles for recognition that build from the work of Asian queer filmmakers. Asian queer filmmakers have been doing this all the time, like Richard Fong, Midi, Midi Oronera, Marie Keiko Gonzalez, and Pratiba Parmar, all of whom are notably non-United States-based film practitioners. I think that's so interesting. So these works um, in, in this chapter is part of, this, this article right now, this essay is part of a larger chapter where I talk about the work of Helen Lee as well as Grace Lee. What these women are doing, like Machiko Saito, are defying the logic of race panics regarding sex and visuality by insisting on using explicit sex as the grounds for articulating and redefining their identities through the power of representation. So the equation is this. If Asian women are overdetermined by hypersexuality, Filmmakers like Saito take on that premise and show how that very sexuality needs to be considered in order to express and understand Asian women's subjection today. And this includes their, you know, their patriarchal subjection by men as well as their, the hypersexual fetishism you know, within a history of colonialism. So they use sexuality and representation to point to the inadequacies of frameworks that reject the importance of their experiences and expressions. So what I'm doing by studying Machiko Saito's work is trying to formulate how both sexual and scopic pleasures are essential to defining and understanding the sexual experiences of Asian American women, their racial subjugation, and their problems with representation. As such, I'm hoping that, that we are able to reject any accusations of race traitorship, false consciousness, and complicity that can arise when women are reclaiming their sexuality or embracing sexual perversity. Asian American feminist filmmakers imagine different futures beyond violence against women and other the tendency to frame women as derivative to men in perception and analysis. By embracing pleasure as political and sexuality as crucial to race and identity, I use these works to include the role of sexuality and visuality in expanding the definitions of Asian American experience. Moreover, the Asian American filmmakers I study are not only committed to representing explicit sex acts as sites for recognition, of oneself and one's relations within and beyond hypersexuality, but also to celebrate the innovation of form to best express their passions for Asian American women. I think what I share with these women, apart from a commitment to, to trying to come up with a language and vocabulary of explicit sex to render their experiences, is a love for Asian American women and, and, and the complexity of their experiences. So 
Machiko Saito's redefinition of sexuality challenges the parameters of Asian American studies conceptions of gender and sexuality in an important way. They artfully provide the evidence we need to make sure the sexual experiences of women, no matter how uncomfortable or difficult, need to be accounted for in our definitions of racial agendas and communities. The discomfort Saito aims for in, in making you uncomfortable in the filmmaking process has an ultimate goal of creating space for subjectivities previously marked as worthless and undervalued for they do not meet standards of normalcy or purity for good Asian women. So in conclusion, by surveying the ontology of Asian women in her films, I, what I'm hoping Saito can do for us is not so much seek to get out of this you know, bind of racial hypersexuality and, and representation, but to insert the importance of engaging explicit sex in racial representation as important to understanding Asian women in popular culture. For example, I think it's so interesting that we see Asian women giving birth to biracial children, but you never see them getting together with these white men. You know, like what happens in the sex act, you know, between white men and Asian women that produces, obviously that produces this child, but how come we don't see it, you know? What can happen there that we can see that can say something about power relationships and you know, the, the collision of fantasies between each other? So Machiko Saito, in, what we may see, I think, is both pleasure and trauma. You know, and I think that's what Machiko Saito is doing. Hypersexuality is a site of trauma as well as pleasure. And film is an expression of ways of looking, seeing, and making presence precisely because of their interpolation as racial and sexualized women. In her works, sexual acts and identities are where vulnerability and strength are negotiated as racialized and gendered subjects within a frequently irreverent Asian American feminist film practice that challenges hypersexual, sex, hypersexuality as an aesthetic and provides important innovations by, by asserting new, new visions and encourage you, encouraging you to have new interpretations of sexuality. So in representing sexual subjectivities and desires, Saito evaluates them as collisions, encounters, and sites of subject formation that ultimately captures the unknowability, difficulty, pleasurability, and emotionality of racialized sexuality and representation. In creating new relations of race, sex, and cinema, she avoids the pitfalls of anti-sex, anti-feminist, and race-evading platforms circulating today. My argument ultimately is about how scopic and sexual pleasure must be part of political critiques of race and representation. In these films, the relationship between sex and race are not premised on repugnance, victimization, or damage. Rather, Saito demands for us, in the broadest sense of any audience, to acknowledge a central different sexual practices in, the, in our experiences. This strongly counters the hypersexuality of Asian women inherit in popular screens and stages. It reclaims sexuality as enabling and essential to any imaginings and articulations of the self. As such, it challenges us to rise towards creative spectatorships and authorships regarding Asian female hypersexuality. That is, we need to imagine sexuality as not antithetical to the politics of race, but essential to its envisioning. Good afternoon. With spring comes pollen, and with pollen comes allergies, so excuse my hoarse voice. Um, thanks, David, Gina, and Margarita for organizing this and for inviting me. And uh, they didn't have to twist my arm at all. Um, and thanks also to Daryl and Celine for sharing their work with me. Both papers complement each other wonderfully as they address the construction of Asian American subject formation at the intersection of regimes of sexuality and race, with particular reference to film. 
Hamamoto examines the work of films like Hearts and Minds, while Perenias examines films by three Asian American women filmmakers. This is in the chapter that I read, Helen Lee, Grace Lee, and Machiko Saito. Both examine the place of desire and fantasy in the formation of sexualized and racialized subject formations, although both locate the mise-en-scene of these formations somewhat differently. Slavoj Žižek instructs us that fantasy provides the coordinates for desire. Hamamoto locates sexualized fantasies about Asian and Asian-American women on the international and transnational terrain formed by imperial adventures and conquests, by the, by the imperial adventures and conquests of the United States in Asia. In his paper, he makes a cogent and powerful argument about how the imperial designs of the US state have implicated the sexual subject formations of Asians within and outside the United States. As he notes, generations of young, American men, uh, young Americans came of age through their sexual fantasies, desires, and experiences in contexts marked by what he describes as, quote, the unregulated availability of Asian women. Obviously, it's not just Asian American sexuality that's constituted here, but equally the sexual subject formation of white, black, as well as Latino men who have fought in theaters of war in Asia and the Pacific. Perhaps Hamamoto has already talked about this in his larger project, but I'd be interested to hear more about the different kinds of masculinities constructed through the fetishized desires of American men for Asian women. How do these fantasies and desires enable the Constitution not just a fetishized Asian femininity, but equally importantly, American, quote-unquote, American masculinities? I'm thinking here of Susan Jeffords' book, which came out, I think, in the early 1990s or maybe the late 1980s, on the re what she called the remasculinization of America during the Vietnam War. And I say this because I believe that if we are to have a sharper, more nuanced sense of the intersection of race, sex, and nationality in the formation of gendered subjects, it is important to include in our histories and analyses of racialization the processes by which not just subaltern but also dominant or at least normative subjectivities are constituted. As Hamamoto points out, the Vietnam War was not just a race war but also a racist war since Americans of color were disproportionately conscripted to fight. The sexual liaisons that came into being then were those between Asian, men, Asian women and American men of different races, white, black, and Latino. Hamamoto's critique is especially instructive because it complicates the relationship between coercion, complicity, and desire when it comes to interracial sex by moving away from the somewhat simplistic view of an all-pervasive Western or white predatory gaze. Furthermore, as Hamamoto argues, Asian women sometimes seek out men not just because they're white, since they are not always white, but because they are American. Here, I believe, it would be really helpful to have a discussion of how gender, class, and constructions of cultural difference intersect in the constitution of Americanness. Furthermore, what does Americanness signify transnationally as well as in particular locations? What different valences get folded into the construction of Americanness as American troops tour Asia at, diff at different historical moments and in different locations? How are discourses of race and desire themselves encoded within the signifier of Americanness? Rather than conceive of Americanness as an empty signifier, it might be helpful to see the different ways in which it is weighted with signification in historically inflect inflected manners. 
My third and last point with regard to Hamamoto's argument is about, the, about what he terms the identification or hyper-identification of Asian subjects with imperial modes of address. While it makes much sense to discuss these processes in terms of identification, I'm also wondering if we, not, if we may not think of other modes of engagement. I'm reminded in particular of Homui Baba's by now perhaps dated discussion of mimicry as a mode in which colonized and post-colonial subjects are constructed. And I'm interested especially in mimicry, not just as a mode of subjugation, but also of deflection and potential threat. In particular, the ways in which subjugated and subaltern knowledges, epistemologies, and modes of representation might refract, but also constrain colonial ways of looking. In his work with mimicry, Baba also speaks of ambivalence, and I'm particularly interested in how ambivalence might be mined as a particular vantage point for feminist and queer critique. This brings me to Perenias's paper. I'm now thinking of Kobina Mercer's essay on, Rabbit, on Robert Mapplethorpe's photographs of black men. In this essay, Mercer speaks of the angler, anger and pleasure these photographs evoked in him. Ambivalence for him is not just a structure of feeling engendered by these photographs, but a particular epistemological and critical vantage point from which to engage the racial and sexual fetishization encoded in these photographs. I'd like to push Perenius to similarly engage the interdiscursive space between authorial intention and textuality evoked by the films she analyzes. Perenius speaks eloquently of how sexual fantasy and desire enable transgressive subject positions for Asian slash American women, many of whom are otherwise trapped by dominant representations of their hypersexuality. The filmmakers Perenia's works with engage these very representations of hypersexuality to construct transgressive, perverse, and sometimes deviant sexualities and lay bare the ways in which cultural difference, race, and gender are encoded in the performance of the sex act. What are the new subjectivities enabled by the fantasies and textualized in these performances? How do they render legible subaltern or, sub or subordinated sexual subjectivities? In engaging these questions, Perenius attempts to assert a new epistemological framework for constituting the sexual subject formation of Asian slash American women. I'd like Perenius to thematize what these new epistemological frameworks might mean for the varied projects of Asian American studies in the post 9-11 conjuncture. Hamamoto reminds us of the intimate relationship between empire and the sexual subject formation of certain racial and cultural others. Hamamoto wonders how the current war in Iraq might implicate representations of Middle Eastern women. Might they be high super eroticized in the same way as Asian and Asian American women? I'd like to suggest that not only is a super eroticization of Middle Eastern women an old story, there is also another extremely pernicious erotics of rescue at work here, undergirding the so-called civilizational mission of US foreign policy, so that Iraqi women and Afghani and Muslim women in general have become objects of pity, but highly eroticized objects of pity, to be rescued by the US state. In eschewing the binary of victim uh, slash heroine, so, so reminiscent of colonial and neocolonial discourses of colonized or subordinated women, Perenius pushes us to confront the erotic agency of Asian American women who, as quote, bad object choices, compel a revisioning of our looking relations, our very engagement with cinematic texts that are simultaneously traumatic and pleasurable. 
I'd like to invite the panelists and others in the room to think about these new erotic formations of American masculinities, the erotics of rescue, and the erotics of torture that have emerged in the post-9-11 conjuncture to enable us to unravel how fear, danger, trauma, and desire might have created regimes of visuality and textuality that might be at once old and new. Old in terms of how they fold together race and sex, but also new in terms of race, religion, and erotics. Thank you. Oh, thank you, all three. Um, perhaps uh, what we could do is, before we start the formal Q&A, uh, give both uh, Celine and Daryl a chance to maybe address briefly uh, whatever points uh, Pranima might have raised that they would like to engage with, or just um, yeah. yeah, I had a comment. I was um, trying to wind down last night and I got the San Francisco Chronicle, but there was an, a feature, a very long feature article about uh, Afghan women in the Bay Area. I don't know if you saw that. It was last, it was last night. Um, yeah, they were, I, you know, I, did, I didn't read through it all the way, but there's sort of this, this, this narrative of, uh, of rescue, this rescue fantasy that was very, that ran through the uh, article all the way. And there were a number of photographs, and it showed them doing, engaging in quote-unquote American pursuits, like playing soccer. And of course, their their garb was quote-unquote Western and all that. So, um, I guess it's filtered in that old that, that old fantasy is filtered into popular culture, at least if you know on the basis of this article. Now, I I was um, struck, but somewhat uh, kind of confused about your your um, comment about to the what the mimicry. I'm yes. not really familiar with that. I mean, you were you were using that as a as a uh, possibility or a, an option that Asian American artists, filmmakers, or mm -hmm. any type of subject group uh, engage in as mm -hmm. sort of an oppositional politics. I wonder if you could flesh well, that out for me. Oh, Sorry. Okay. Oh, yes. Um, Yes, about, uh, well, yes, to, uh, with, in response to your first comment about the photographs mm -hmm. of Afghani women, mm -hmm. what's been really fascinating to me is how those photographs existed even before 9-11, and in a very frightening and peculiar way, somehow foreshadowed what 9-11 has come to represent. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, these photographs were circulating th through emails that I received way back in 2000, in, I would say 1996 or 1997, from no less than the feminist majority. Right, mm -hmm. And so it's really fascinating yeah. to me how those kinds of photographs um, of bur usually burqa-clad women who may be from Afghanistan or from some generalized place called the Islamic world mm -hmm. circulated. And um, I think it's really important to pay attention to the scopic regimes that have emerged, uh, not just after 9-11, but over the last at least decade and a half. Mm -hmm. um, to go back to your question or your, uh, you know, your, your, what you were saying about mimicry, What's, I think, useful about the way in which at least Homi Baba explicates his, well, he doesn't explicate anything, but he, what he suggests <laughs> in terms of mimicry is not so much that it's a purely oppositional subject position, but precisely the double-edged nat uh, nature of the kinds of positions that are created for colonized subjects that, um, that involve both their mimicking, literally in terms of you know uh, uh, the common sense term of the word, sense of the word, um, the, the modes of address, the um, you know, epistemological points of view, and so on and so forth, of the colonizers, but with an edge, right? And that's what's 
ultimately um, terrifying to the colonized masters. For instance, when you have a brown spoke person speaking back to you in your language, but with a different accent, right? That's when the not white, not quite uh, sense of instability comes in. And that, for me, is a much more um, interesting, nuanced, complicated way of understanding what happens than, for instance, identification, which, for me personally, flattens out some of the complications in those subject positions. Celine, do you want to? Yeah, um, thank you so much for those comments. And a question that I'm currently obsessing about, which was very, uh, some part of your response is very helpful to it, which is this kind of fetishization of the rescue, mm -hmm. you know, for Asian women. And this is an age-old question, you know, that I think that Gayatri Spivak asks so well. Can the subaltern speak? And what, what, what can we say about experiences that are radically unrepresentable and what is our role in them. And sexuality is so much in that realm. Questions about sexuality are in that realm. And what leads us to our project? You know, what leads us to these projects about the problematizing the masculinity <coughs> of Asian men? And, and for me, you know, I'm so obsessed with this idea of what are these Asian women doing speaking in this language of sexuality that has so much organized their experiences but doing it in a really different way. Mm -hmm. right. And so... I'm trying to give word to my relationship with my subjects, my relationship to these films, you know. Um, as someone who's obsessed with sexuality, you know, the bottomless pit of wonder that is sexuality, <laughs> like many of us are, um, I think that I have a relationship of kind of defense. You know, when I meet these women, like Machiko Saito, who are committed to representing these experiences, I think I, I'm not trying to rescue them or mm -hmm. even protect them, I think. But mm -hmm. what I'm trying to do is kind of defend these experiences, you know, to, to follow what yeah. Dana Takagi recommends us to do, which is to define sexuality in all of its polymorphous perversity, mm -hmm. in all of its richness, you know, mm -hmm. to, to insist on making it permanently unclear what we mean by sexuality. And I, and I wonder at that, you know, and I think it's, it's demanding for us to be as inclus inclusive as possible in terms of who our communities are. And so I really appreciate this, this, this comment you had about rescue because I'm trying to think about that so much. What is my relationship to the sexual subject, especially when they're trying to present the perverse and present, you know, um, the abnormal, you know, and, and represent that. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, the only thing I can say in response is itself a question. I mean, how does one rescue something that's unrecoverable? Right. Right. And I'm thinking again of um, Spivak's term, where, where she talks about uh, cognitive failure. That's it. Right. Right. Where there, there's certain kinds of experiences that are intrinsically unrecoverable. Right. And what kind of hermeneutics are we engaging? When we, when we engage those kinds of projects. Right. So, I mean, I don't have an answer, but right. I mean, I think one of the things that I appreciate is your insistence on making it permanently opaque. Right. Because I think that's really important. Rather than pinning it down and saying that's immoral, that's wrong. Or that, that it's A or B. Right. Right? Unequivocally A or B. Right. Comments from the floor, questions? Open it up now. Yeah. Peter. Um, Selena, I have struggling with uh, ways to phrase it that aren't loaded and then I realize that there's no way to phrase that's not loaded because it's much about that. You talked about queerness and perversity um, and uh, aberrant sexual behavior, right? And, it, and I was wondering if it has to be constituted that way, if it's even possible to is it possible to imagine uh, 
claiming vanilla sex is basically one. And this is what I mean by motive, because obviously the whole idea of vanilla sex here with some original cultural overtones. Right? And um, whether whether it is somehow less recoverable than aberrant somehow, right? Or on the other hand, we could say that going back to Freud, that any wooden sexuality is yeah. aberrant. So that even vanilla sex is aberrant. What is vanilla sex? Straight. Uh, that, straight missionary position. Is that, uh, <laughs> on. is that French vanilla or <laughs> American <laughs> vanilla? Or? Oh. Straight, straight as possible. Is that like a porn film part? Yeah. 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 No, it's general. Yeah. Anything on the <laughs> if you have to ask your vanilla. So, in some ways, I'm kind of begging the. I mean, I think that um, I have to say that the way I deploy vanilla sex, before I answer your question, <laughs> I think the reason why I'm a sexuality scholar is because I'm a vanilla person. Because I don't have, <laughs> I don't have guilt, you know? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, <laughs> too much information. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I mean, I think what I'm trying to do in my work is to try to o open up um, definitions of sexuality to include good women, bad women, and everyone in between. Mm. Right? I think that's what I'm trying to do. Mm -hmm. I hope that answers your question. I am a good woman, by the way. I'm just kidding. <laughs> we, we have it on tape. Steve. <laughs> This is, I think, part of a very large question about, you know, how do we study sexuality in the academy? And how we study sexuality in the academy is usually in women's studies departments, you know, and there's a very famous essay by Gail Rubin where she gets in trouble precisely for this question, and it's called um, Thinking Sex. And this, this, the trouble that she gets into in this question is people say that she is defending, um, you know, pedophiles. You know, like, what... Because in my work, I'm very cautious about the way moralism unconsciously kind of undergirds you know, our understanding of sexuality, being able to say one is right or one is wrong. And so what I'm trying to do is 
asking us to pay attention to that moralism, especially if we're silencing people who have been subjugated. And so in Gail Rubin's argument, she's basically saying that because sex, the study of sex is so tied to the study of gender, and specifically the oppression of women, the way we look at sexuality is very much within this discourse of victimization, right? And so it's important for her to kind of break, break that sex-gender system and say, how can we study sex in these other contexts to open up the debate so it isn't caught up between, between this, this very binary framework of what is moral versus immoral. So it's once again to kind of insist on the ambiguity of these terms. But the challenge, I think, in race and sexuality mm -hmm. studies is, is um, you know, still something that we're trying to figure out, right? Like, what is the difference between what Foucault says, which is the kind of the open secret that sex is all about? We all know what we're supposed to not talk about and talk about, and we all know what practices are right and what practices are wrong, what practices are okay to share, you know? Um, <clears throat> and in the scene of racialized sexuality, like Abdul Jai Muhammad wrote this essay called On and Off the Racial Border, where he says Foucault totally got it wrong when he's talking about racial sexuality in the United States because the abuse of women of color and men of color is something that is not only like an open secret, but something that is institutionally tolerated and you know sanctioned, right? And so um, I hope I'm answering your question in two ways, which is I'm trying to caution us to watch out for ourselves when we ourselves are moralistic, but at the same time, I don't want to come off as a kind of rabid, anti-bad sex, anti-good sex person. Do you, know, do you know what I mean by that? Like, um, I get really scared of anti-porn feminists who, yeah, but who are very adamant about saying that pornography violates the civil rights of women, but I don't want to go into the realm of sex positivity where all sexual activity is good. I think that's very important to make a distinction, especially in the context of, of racialized sexuality. When, when so, so this is why the, the question of power, I think, provides a way to frame the problem. I, mean, I, mean, I totally agree. I think the problem that you frame is, is, is having to address. Um, but you know, uh, it, it seems as if, within the frame in, in the talk, there was something that was clearly, clearly not acceptable. Yes. Right, I think there's two things. First is that I think there's this there's, there's kind of balancing act required in, in terms of trying to figure out individual power and kind of group situations, you know? And I think the solution to that is precisely films like Machiko Saito where we are talking about a very specific kind of history. Like she felt subjugated, she felt raped, right? And the film is so much a celebration of survival from that rape at the same time that it is um, an indictment of demands to become pure. Right? She says that I now have become this perverse person and I love it and maybe it has ties to this particular kind of sexual past where I was victimized, right? So I think that the answer lies in our specific engagements with the way these women are articulating it for themselves. Okinawa, Japan, yes. Uh, is, is there any study about uh, how, how 
Yes, I, I cut out that section of my paper. I didn't want to run into uh, Celine's time, actually. Uh, in Okinawa, Japan, there's a phenomenon known as Ame-jo. Ame is short for American, Jo is girl. And what that denotes or connotes is uh, uh, local women, Okinawan women, who only go after American military men. And this is where the issue of nationality comes in, because they're not always white men. Yeah. They're also Dominicans. They're Puerto Rican, and they're non-citizens. They're using the military as a way of gaining U.S. citizenship. And uh, they're also uh, Latinos from, who are U.S.-born Latinos. So in that case, you actually have nationality trumping race because they're going for the U.S. brand name. And this is in a society that by now is not impoverished, post-war, reconstructed society. It's, it's a middle-class society. Uh, but yeah, there are studies of that, and that's actually something that uh, I'm going to be looking at a little bit closer. I'm going to interview a number of so-called Amejo to kind of uh, unpack what are the, the, what's the psychology behind it, what is the attraction, what is the lure. And ironically, these are men, the service U.S. military men, who uh, they're called zero to hero. In America, they're zeros. In, a, in an occupied country, they're heroes because these are un underclass people, white, Latino, sometimes Native American uh, and African American. Typically, they have a high school education, but in this colonial setting, they're highly desirable. And anecdotally, I've heard that this is quite similar in other countries as well, such as the Philippines. So yeah, that's definitely something that's part of the, the larger study. Well, there's really uh, the boundary between Asia and Asian American. That's part of this sort of transnational critique that I'm uh, invoking. It's really unclear. I mean, for one thing, there are, by now, since the end of World War II, there have been tens of thousands of Asian women who are now Asian American who are so-called war brides or military brides. They are part of the Asian American uh, history, historical uh, pattern. But we, have never, we haven't even looked at that yet. So I'd be interested in taking a look at them. Uh, so far as Asian American women is concerned itself, I think there's a lot of blowback from overseas exchange between uh, American men with Asian women to the United States. This is where the bulk of them since for the last 50 years have gained their initial formative sexual experience. So they're bringing that mindset back to the United States. Sometimes in pathological forms, there's this guy named uh, uh, Jack Smith or something. He was a serial killer. He was actually uh, bringing, importing women from Korea, South Korea and the Philippines as wives and he killed two or three of them in a row. <laughs> he wanted to make them into a sort of sex slave. I'm not saying that this is a typical pattern, but that's sort of the, the outer extreme of it. So what goes on over there in Asia, the Asian world, is very much, it's part and parcel with, with I believe, the, the, uh, the growth, the distortion, the a warpage given of Asian American sexuality. This is something that I've, that I've uh, come to believe over the past five or six years. 
Um, there are there are actually many scholars who have traced the long tradition of hypersexual Asian women as you know. There's this lit litany, right? The famous litany that Jessica Hagedorn says: "Dragon Lady, Lotus Blossom, Prostitute with the Heart of Gold, Dominatrix, Slut." And so this film by Machiko Saito and the other films that I read are about the way in which these women are occupying the position of the whore, the slut, the dominatrix, you know, the prostitute, sex worker with a heart of gold, and trying to um, occupy that position in a way that comments on, you know, why they got there, what is that experience about, and how does it respond to you know, the history of these images. You know, why are they using this language in order to represent their experiences, right? And they're redefining sexuality, not just as victimizing, but also um, formative. It's an everyday part of their experience. Okay, we'll take one more question, then we have some refreshments outside, but let's, let's hear more. Same-sex sexuality. Well, there's something very, very uh, similar going on, similar dynamics, and that is that uh, gay servicemen in Asia find a cornucopia of sexual possibility with typically younger Asian males, uh, specifically, uh, well, at least uh, my immediate knowledge, during the Vietnam War era. Uh, and because of that initial ex experience and contact, remember in the Vietnam era, uh, the average age of the uh, serviceman, the, the draftee, was around 19 years old. So typically most people haven't had an incredible lot of sexual experience at that point. So this is imprinted on them. So when they come back to the United States, they are looking for Asian-American <coughs> men in specific. And in the, uh, in the lingo, I think they're known as uh, rice queens, isn't that right? So, uh, and that's a stated preference among, among uh, many people same, who are looking for same-sex partners. So it's something very similar. I don't know. There might, there's probably some points of, of divergence as well. But again, I think they're both rooted in this colonial contact. Well, please join me in thanking the panelists once more for their wonderful comments. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.